I've been, we're going to the book of James first of all, but Daniel, if you could give me that title slide, please. I've been talking about teaching on family and relationships for a little while, and I'm um, going to start that series today. And the computer doesn't freeze up on us, and uh, any resemblance to you or your family members is purely coincidental, okay? Don't anybody be offended afterwards. But uh, we're going to start this series on relationships this morning. I'm going to be drawing from uh, several sources as part of my preparation and study, including some lessons from Brother Brother David Bernard. Um, So often when we think about relationships, particularly when we think about friends or spouses, we think about what kind of a person we should be looking for. What are the qualities of a good friend? What are the attributes of a good husband or wife? But how we view those factors is very strongly influenced by how we view ourselves. And that's what we're going to start today. We're going to talk about ourselves. So let's just pray. We need to pray for Sister Lynette. She's not well. Lord, in Jesus' name, we thank you for the report of healing that we've heard this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the miracles we've seen in the missions presentations. And Lord, you are the same. You do not change. And we are looking to you, Lord, to be the one that provides our needs, Lord. We want to be worshipers. We want to be people that give you glory and honor. And we lift up Sister Lynette to you. You know that she'd rather be in your house. We ask you to touch her body and heal her in Jesus' name. Lord, I pray that you would give us a fresh understanding this morning of some things we may feel we already know. Lord, that we would be, Lord, positioned how you would have us to be, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. A very simple example of how you how view, the way that you view yourself can affect your relationship with others is that if you have a very poor opinion of yourself, then you might find yourself thinking that you are not worthy or deserving of a good husband or a good wife, and then you might settle for somebody that's not going to be good for you or not going to be good to you. And many of us probably know people that we've seen that happen where somebody's entered into a relationship that was obviously not going to be healthy, but possibly because of the person's own view of themselves, they thought that that was an acceptable situation. But what often happens there is that leads to unhealthy relationships, which only contribute further to the negative way in which that person sees themselves. We touched on this subject briefly in our recent series on partakers of his holiness but we're going to take a little bit more time on it this morning james chapter 1 starting at verse 22 says but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving your own selves for if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass or in a mirror. For he beholds himself, or he looks at his reflection, he goes his way and straightway forgets what manner of man he was, or forgets the image of himself that he just saw in the mirror. We often read this scripture, those of you that are familiar with the book of James, and we consider it from the viewpoint of how the Word of God should bring about changes in our lives. And how that, just as your bathroom mirror first thing in the morning lets you know that you need to wash your face, you need to brush your hair, you need to freshen up, so too the Word of God reflects an image to us that God is still working on. 
It, it is not in any way judgmental, but God's Word is always designed to change us, to transform us. Amen. And one of the changes that is necessary that sometimes slips between the cracks is that God wants, the Word of God wants to change the way that we see ourselves and understand ourselves. Genesis chapter 3, uh, we're going to read verses 7 through 9, but the context is the beginning of sin in the human race when Adam and Eve disobeyed the commandment of the Lord. And in Genesis 3 and 7, it says, The eyes of them both were opened. It's not speaking about their physical sight because they already had that. It's talking about something that happened in their minds. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where are you? Adam was not hiding where God could not see him. It was a question of where he was standing in his relationship with God. And when the first man and woman's eyes were opened, or in other words, they became aware of good and evil, their nature was corrupted. It changed the way they saw themselves. It changed the way they saw others. And it changed the way they saw the Lord. They saw each other as naked and tried to cover their shame. It was the first time ever that they had tried to hide from God. And what this passage lets us know amongst a lot of things is that it dramatically altered their relationships. The sinful nature impacts human relationships. It impacts human relationships with each other and human relationships with God. And God is constantly trying to reach to sinful humanity to get them to see what He wants them to see, to understand what He wants them to understand. In Luke chapter 15 and verse 17, in the middle of the story of the prodigal son, when he finds himself in a very desperate situation feeding the pigs and being so desperate that he was even considering eating the pigs' food, Luke 15, 17 says that when he came to himself, when he, one version says, when he began to think clearly again, when something happened in his mind that affected his understanding of the situation, he began to remember it was better in his father's house. And humanity as a whole needs to come to a position where we are informed and begin to remember that it's always going to be better in our Heavenly Father's house. That no matter what the world has to offer, it's better in the Father's house. Amen. But it requires something to happen in our thinking. To underline that idea, Luke chapter 5, verses 31 to 32. Jesus was challenged about some of his interactions. And it says, Jesus answering said unto them, They that are whole need not a physician. But they that are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This was not, Jesus was not making a suggestion that 50% of the population were sick and the other 50% were well. He wasn't saying, I know there's only half of you need a doctor, the rest of you are okay. That wasn't the message. The message was only those who realized their illness could be ministered unto. I must realize that I am a sinner if I'm going to receive salvation. How can I be saved if I'm unaware that I am lost? 
If I don't, I'm not aware that I need saving, why would I want to be saved? Amen. And so what happens in our thinking has a massive impact on ourselves and our relationship with God and with others. Every one of us needs to understand that you are a unique creation of God. Turn to your neighbor and say, I am, don't tell them, say, I'm a unique creation. We're trying to change your thinking, not theirs. I am a unique creation of God. Psalm 100 and verse 3 says that, Know ye that the Lord, He is God. It is He that has made us, and not we ourselves. God made us. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. And so regardless of what has happened in your life, how much you might have messed it up, how much somebody else might have messed it up for you, you are made by God. You are made by God. Psalm 139, verses 14 through 16, says, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect, and in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. That's a fairly chewy mouthful of King James English. But breaking that down, what the psalmist was saying was, Lord, you made me, and you do great work. Even when I was in my mother's womb, you knew everything about me. You saw me before my form was even complete. You knew every detail of every day of my life before I even lived a single one. That's incredible to think about. God has made you unique. Six, seven billion people on the planet, no two fingerprints the same. No two voice prints the same. They can do that now with technology. They can take your voice print the company that provides my internet at home when I ring up customer service, you have to repeat at Ionet, my voice is my password or whatever. You feel like a real doofus talking to the phone. But they have recorded your voice and they are able to identify that it is you that is speaking. High-tech security now scans your retina because nobody has two that are the same. Every single one of us is unique. You are the real... Turn to your neighbor again and say, you're the real deal. You're a genuine original. A genuine original. You're not a fake. You're not a copy. You're not pirated. Well, you kind of are by the devil, but we'll get back to that. But you are a genuine original. He made one of you. How much do you think cars are worth if they only make one model? More than I've got in the bank, that's for sure. And each one of us, none of us come off a production line. We're not out of a factory. We are custom made by the King of Kings. And we can say amen to that, but sometimes it takes a little bit longer to drop from our brain to our heart. It's not a long trip physically, but sometimes it's a long journey spiritually. Amen. You are the real deal. And you have a unique purpose. And you are the object of God's love. Romans 5 and 8. But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died 
for us. That word commended tells me that God demonstrated, He exhibited, He introduced His love while I was still a sinner. John 3.16, along the same lines, many of you know this verse, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. So while we were yet still sinning, while we were sitting in the consequences of our sin, I know that Jesus went to the cross 2,000 years ago. I know it didn't happen in my lifetime. But He knew where you would be when He found you. He knew where I would be when He found me. And He still considered us worth dying for. So while we were addicts, while we were fornicators, while we were liars, while we were victims of abuse, while we were thieves, we were drunkards, blasphemers, violent, unwanted by others and abandoned, while we were in the midst of all that mess, He died for us. That's a statement of how valuable you are to Him. Now we can, again... I'm going to get in somebody's grill this morning. You can say amen and raise your hand, but unless it's happening in here, you are valuable in His sight. Oh, but you don't know where I've been, what I've done, who I am, blah, 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 fill in the blank. Does not matter. While we were yet sinners, God commended His love toward us. He said, I know you're an addict. I know you're a fornicator. I know you're a liar, but let me introduce my love to you. That's the God that we serve. And He made each and every one of us different. I don't know how creative you have to be to make 7 billion different people. And that's right now. What about all the ones through history? You can't go up and dig up somebody's bones in ancient Egypt and find matching DNA to yours. It doesn't work. Every person since the garden is uniquely created by God. Even twins have differences. Uniquely created, with a unique purpose, made specifically for that purpose. Now, a lot of humanity never fulfills that purpose, but they were still made for that purpose. Amen. And he made each of us with different skill sets, different abilities, different personalities, different different everything. We've all met somebody that you think is so different to you, you'll never get along. Some of us go to church with those people. Don't look at your wife, please, or your husband. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 8, talking about the seed falling into the ground and us being the ground, it says, but other other seed fell into good ground. So these are all good ground and brought forth fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. See, we would look at that and go bronze, silver, and gold. But the scripture says that's all good ground. That's all good ground. Same idea, Matthew 25 and 15. And unto one, he gave five talents. That talents is not talking about abilities. It's talking about a measure, a measure of value, like an investment. And not that one is more valuable than the other, but he's trusting them with an investment. To another two and to another one. To every man according to his several ability and straightway took his journey. Again, They're all faithful servants. They're given things. They're trusted by the master. But you see, there's something about human nature. There's something about people that we all want to be the hundredfold soil. We all want to be the five-talent servant. The Lord said, I'll give you what I think you can handle. 
I made you that way. If he said, I want you to be the best one talent servant you can be because that's how I made you, that's success. He said, you're only a 30-fold soil, a 30-fold patch of ground. I designed you to be that way. Bring forth the fruit that I designed you to bring forth. Don't worry about the person down the road who's bringing forth a hundredfold. But something about human nature says, I want to win the gold medal. But consider this. Let me balance that out. Luke chapter 12, verses 47 to 48. Let's see what happens when people are given or entrusted with more. And that servant, which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. But unto whomsoever much is given, of him much shall be required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. Oh, well, hang on a sec. Maybe I'm happy to be 30-fold now. Maybe one talent will do me just fine. Thanks very much. Because to whom much is given, much is required. There's a lot to be said for being content where and how God has made you. The psalmist said in Psalm 84 and verse 10, A day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I had rather be the doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. The writer of this psalm understood that just to be in church was all that really mattered. He said, if he only gives me one talent, I just want to be in his house. That's all that matters. I don't need the, the prominence and all that stuff. Just want to be in his house. Just want to stand in the door of the house of God and be one of his children. There's a wonderful story in the Old Testament in First Samuel, somewhere in the teens, chapter 17, somewhere in there, where the prophet Samuel is sent by God to the house of Jesse to anoint a king to replace Saul who's got out of his lane and caused all sorts of chaos. And they come in and they come to... Samuel is a mighty man of God. You read about his ministry and it talks about how the Lord didn't let any of his words fall to the ground. He was an anointed prophet of the Lord and he comes into Jesse's house and they've laid on a feed and and he said, we're not going to sit down to eat until I do what I came to do. And he said, you know, the Lord sent me to anoint one of your sons and the sons of Jesse line up and starts with the oldest. I think his name was Eliab or something like that. And Samuel looks at him and says, man, what a fine young man. He's tall, he's strong, good looking. He'll be the one. And the Lord said, nope. They went down the line. But at this one, Lord, he's not quite as good as the eldest, but he's as close second. Nope. All the way down until the one who was at the end, and the Lord's not approving any of them. And Samuel's like, Lord, we've run out of sons. What do you want me to do here? And he says to Jesse, you sure all the kids are here? And Jesse's like, well, there's one. It's the runt of the litter. It's David. He's out looking after the sheep, which apparently was a girl's job. They had tough girls back then because David fought lions and bears. And uh, so Jesse said, we're not doing anything else till you send for him. David comes in and the Lord says, this is the one. And that prophet takes his horn of oil, empties it on that young man's head, and anoints him for the purpose that he was fearfully and wonderfully made for. Then there's a but though, because after his anointing, it didn't all happen straight away. 
But here's the thing we need to learn. What was David doing when God anointed him for his purpose? David was doing what his father told him to do. He was doing what he was told to do. See, Psalm 75, verses 6 to 7 says that promotion comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. But God is the judge. He puts down one, and he sets up another. Even after his anointing, David allowed God to bring his will to pass. Didn't kill Saul, didn't push his own agenda. He just said, God, if you've anointed me, you'll make it come to pass. Amen. Amen. There's a powerful principle there. If God has made you fearfully and wonderfully and uniquely, which he has, he has a purpose for you. If you are doing everything he wants you to do, he will bring it to pass. It didn't matter when the prophet couldn't see it. It didn't matter when a backslidden king couldn't see it. God still brought it to pass. And God will bring his will to pass, regardless of what others do and do not see. Amen. It is a good thing, getting back to how we see ourselves. It is a good thing, it is a godly thing to have self-respect. Not self-esteem as the world sees it. The world approaches the issue making it all about me. It's all about me. But when we get it right, it's all about Jesus. Amen. When my perspective or how I see things is through him, I'm going to be in the right balance. Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 to 26. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever shall save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? My life and your life has its maximum value and satisfaction when I live it for the sake of Jesus Christ. When I do my best to find why I was fearfully and wonderfully made and what things he put in me that are a part of his purpose, that is where satisfaction is found. When we lose our life for his sake. Amen. The world says... You can be anything you want to be. I'm all for positive reinforcement, but that's a lie. You can't be everything, anything you want to be. If you're tone deaf, you will never be a professional singer. There are things that God has given you, and there are things God has not given you. I'm all for, yes, be the best version of yourself and all that stuff, but you simply can't be anything you want to be. If you're five feet tall, you're highly unlikely to be an Olympic high jumper. It's probably not going to happen, no matter what anybody tells you. But God has given each of us talents, gifts, abilities. And the reason for those things He's given us is that we might fulfill His will and His purpose in our lives. That's why we exist, for His glory. Now, we should have a positive attitude. I believe that the people of God should be positive. Faith is positive. But our positive attitude is based on Him, not on us. The positive attitude in the world says, I can be whatever I want to be. 
a positive attitude in the kingdom of God says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can be what he wants me to be because he will enable me to do that. Because he made you, he will strengthen you to do what he wants you to do. And you can be who he made you to be. And through him, you can accomplish his will in your life. We spend our lives trying to be something that isn't the plan of God. It leads to frustration and despair. But if I do my best, say, God, here I am. And let him lead and guide. We will fulfill his will in our lives. 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. I started a little late this morning, so you're going to have to cut me some slack. 1 John 4 and 16 says, And we have known and believed the love that God has to us. That's a very powerful verse. Knowing it's one thing, believing it is a whole other thing. God is love. He that dwelleth in love dwells in God and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect or complete that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect or complete love casts out fear because fear has torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. So if we've got fear... It connects back to verse 16 where the relationship between knowing and believing God's love for us. If there's a dysfunction there, we can have fear. But if we let God complete that, it casts out fear. Verse 19 says, We love Him because He first loved us. If a man say, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment have we from Him that he who loveth God loves his brother also. So when you know and trust, that that word believe there, known and believe, it comes down to trust. When I know and you know and trust the love that God has for us, it will produce the following outcomes from this passage, that we will abide in him and he in us. And in that relationship, we are not afraid to stand before him. That's mind-blowing thing. I can have boldness. That's not talking about arrogance or pride. That's talking about an assurance and a confidence in my relationship with Him. We can stand before Him because we are living as He would have us to live in this world, as He is in this world, so are we. We're living the way that He wants us to live in this world. This is only possible, and this is what it all comes back to, because He first loved us while we were yet sinners. And then we will see the impact of, that that love has on our relationships. Can we say we love God and hate our brother? He who loves God loves his brother also. So, when I get an adjusted perspective or view of who I am in the sight of God, recognizing that anything I have of value comes from him, that he loved me first while I was still in filth and didn't even know his name, when I love him because he loved me and I, I trust his love, it will give us a confidence that will then produce a love for our brothers and sisters. So often if we're struggling to love somebody else, it's connected to a dysfunction in our accepting the love of God for us. That's Bible. Amen. Bless the Lord. All right, let's move on. Four possible areas, not exhaustive, but four possible areas that can be the source of why we don't like ourselves. And if some of us are honest this morning, we've had times 
where we don't like ourselves. First thing on the list is personal failures. We are very aware of our shortcomings, and there may be some that we are especially disappointed about or ashamed of. Anybody ever wish they could wind back the tape, get in a little time machine, pop back a month, a year, a week, and just have a redo? Never gone and thought, man, if I, I don't know if I could have handled that situation any worse than I did. I'm impressed with how bad I handled that situation. We've all probably said, I wish I could just press rewind and go back. You know what would happen if we could do that? We'd be going backwards constantly. We'd be, you know, we'd be in negative somewhere back there because we're trying to start everything again. You cannot go back. Yesterday's done. When you got up this morning, it's a new day. My Bible says His mercies are new every morning. Amen. So sometimes it's things we've done, we're disappointed in. We've all got them. It can be our past. Again, same sort of concept. Criticism or abuse from others in our past. People who go through that kind of treatment at the hands of others. Particularly if it's sustained over a period of time. It, it, it might be one thing to get abused by somebody in a once-off, but if you are under sustained mistreatment, you can become convinced that you are unlikable and unlovable. It happens in busted families. It happens in busted relationships. And again, it's a product of brokenness. There can be things in our present. You may feel like you're experiencing a lack of acceptance, whether that's perceived or genuine from others. That can affect whether or not we like ourselves. And all of these things join up together and gang up on us for our future because we have trouble believing that God loves us and, and have confidence and faith for tomorrow. Those are the products of broken humanity. And it is not always easy. I'm not suggesting it is. But God wants us to release ourselves from the past. Because He has forgiven you. If you've repented of your sins, if you've been baptized in Jesus' name, your record is clean. Turn to your neighbor and say, God has forgiven you. Now ask them if they believe that. Don't lie in the house of God. Now say, God has forgiven me. Because I can. Be it's easy for me to believe that God will forgive Sister Marshall. Who wouldn't forgive Sister Marshall? But to believe for me, that's a different story. Because I know me. I go home with me every night. I see me's face in the mirror every day. But his book says that if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. But if I will go to him and say, God... Again, <laughs> I've done it again, Lord. Got my attitude bent out of shape, said some things, did some things, thought some things. Will you forgive me again? He is faithful and just to forgive us. How do we start to release ourselves from the past? We've got to accept God's forgiveness. Romans 4, verses 6 to 8. Even as David also described the blessedness of the man under whom God imputeth righteousness without works in other words God gives it to us we can't earn it saying blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin that word impute means God is not putting it on your account if you have repented you are, he doesn't keep it on your account Amen. 2 Corinthians 5 and 21 says for he made him to be sin for us 
who knew no sin. Why? That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. There's nothing you're doing to earn that. He stepped into a place where he took upon himself the guilt, the shame, the punishment, and the horror of every sin that was ever committed. Not because we deserved it, but because he first loved us. And now it's our responsibility to say, God, I'm going to accept your forgiveness. I'm going to trust what your word says and believe that you've made me your righteousness. Amen. We need to uproot bitterness. Hebrews 12 and 15. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up. If it says springing up, it means it can happen quick. Trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Bitterness is contagious. It's contagious. We need to forgive others. Ephesians 4 and 32. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake, even as God through Christ has forgiven you. Many times, and I think this is a really important thing, principle, many times we struggle to accept the forgiveness of God because we're at the same time, we are struggling to release bitterness of the past and to forgive others. It's very hard to open your hand and receive something when you will not let go of what you're holding on to. say that again it's very hard to reach out and accept something god wants you to have when you won't let go of the thing he needs to take and when cassandra was little and i asked her if i could share this story i can't remember how old she was i don't know maybe four years old one morning we were having breakfast and she was coming out of the kitchen carrying a a bowl cereal bowl and her pajamas were a bit big and they were falling down and my wife said cassandra pull up your pajamas and so as a little child she obeyed she dropped the bowl pulled up her pajamas and the bowl smashed you can't do one without releasing the other and we can't well that's not exactly what we meant but you did what you were told to do it's the old story that many of us have heard of the monkey in the jar of peanuts the monkey gets into the house and finds the peanuts and puts his empty hand into the jar takes a fistful of peanuts and all of a sudden can't get his hand out of the jar And when the person comes into the house, the monkey must make a choice between peanuts or life. And when you hang on to something that God wants to deliver you from, you're effectively making a choice between peanuts and life. Because what God has is worth so much more than a fistful of peanuts or bitterness or unforgiveness or whatever it may be. And we say, but I can't let go of it. You know why we can't let go? We want retribution. We want somebody to pay. And the Lord says, vengeance is mine. It's not your department. And if you're struggling to accept God's forgiveness, we may need to examine ourselves carefully and ask, what are we holding on to? What's blocking the flow? Am I refusing to release something? And that's why I'm not taking a hold of something else. Because the two, God's, God will, God's already forgiven. You know, forgiveness can cost you something. Sometimes there's a price to pay. Sometimes you'll never see retribution or the appropriate consequences you think someone else deserves. We may even have to bear the consequences of someone else's actions. Let me give you an example. My good friend, Brother Moses here 
comes over to my house to see me. He's so excited to come visit me that he comes up the driveway too fast and plows into the back of my car. Which would be hard. He'd have to go through the garage door first. But anyway, and does a lot of damage to my car. And I say, have you got any insurance, Moses? And he says, uh, no. You got any money, Moses? No. Right then I've got a choice. I can sue him or I can bear the cost and forgive my brother. It's a very simple example, but sometimes we have to accept that there will be things that will never be resolved in the fashion that we consider suitable in this life. Put them in God's hands and say, Lord, i got to trust you. I've got to release it. Release it. Let it go. Drop the peanuts and say, God, I need life. Because whatever it was, no matter how severe it was, it's not worth your soul. When we forgive anyway, we do so because we are receiving forgiveness that is so much greater than what we are extending. No matter how traumatic a hurt may be, is it worth being lost for eternity? That's the question. Things we can do to help us accept God's love and to have a right perspective of who we are in God. Accept the things we cannot change. You will go nuts trying to change things you cannot change. Sometimes you're just going to say, that's how it is, and go forward. There are just some things, some situations, some people. I've talked to pastors who've counseled people who've come back to them with the same situation again and again and again. And the pastor said, you cannot change that. That's out of your realm of responsibility. That's somebody else's situation. You cannot change that. Accept it and move forward. You can spend your life trying to change things that won't change. Guess what? When you get to the end of your life, still not changed. But you've wasted your life trying to change things that the Lord's saying, trust me and go forward. And then we've got to change the things we can change by the grace of God, by the power of God. You know what's funny about human nature? We don't want to change the things we can. We want to change the things we can't. Let's be honest. There's things that God says, well, we can do something about it, but Lord, I want you to do something about that. The Lord says, no, we're over here. No, no, I'm over here. And until, the fun, God doesn't move too much. He's waiting for us to move to Him. And in line with our theme for this year, to help us forgive and to see ourselves the way the Lord wants to see us, in everything, give thanks. First Thessalonians 5 and 18, in everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God. In Christ Jesus concerning, everybody say, me. As God's will concerning me. In everything, give thanks. God has a purpose, and I'm coming to a close. God has a purpose for your life. Ask Him to help you find it. He will. We do it His way. You know what a great way to experience the love of God is? Is to look for a way to demonstrate it to somebody else. You feel like you're not sure if you can feel the love of God? Look for a way to demonstrate it to somebody else. I'm not talking about being valuable just by the things you do. That's works-based. That's not of God. But I'm saying if you will make an effort to love somebody else, what happens is the love of God begins to flow through you, and you become aware of His love for you. And then you can get a hold of the fact that God does love me, that He can use me, and that will change the way that we see ourselves and others 
We're talking about relationships. That's what this series is about. We're starting at ground zero. We're starting with me. Because if me is messed up, all the relationships follow suit. Amen. Bless the Lord. You are not who this world says you are. You are not who the devil says you are. You are created by God. You are redeemed and brought back by God. You are precious in His sight and He has a purpose for you. But, Proverbs 3, 5-6, to Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways, not some of them, all of them, acknowledge Him. And He shall do what? He'll direct your paths. You feel like you don't know what God wants you to do? Take your hands off the wheel. Let Him drive for a while. Let Him drive for a while. You ever been in a car with somebody that's a terrifying driver? And they say, I'm a bit tired. Would you like to drive? You almost jump into the driving seat because you feel like your existence is under threat. That's kind of how God feels when you're driving the car. He said, Lord, would you like to drive? He's like, oh, at last, I was hoping they'd ask because we're about to wreck. Amen. As long as we see ourselves through the measurements of mankind, our value will go up and down depending on our performance and the opinions of others. But when we see ourselves as his children, as belonging to Jesus, it can bring stability and a quiet confidence that then impacts all of our relationships. Let's stand together this morning. Thank you, Jesus.